remain standing for our sermon text and gospel lesson. Also, once again, from Luke chapter 15. I'll read the first few verses and then skip down to the final parable. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable parable to them, saying, and now skip down to verse 11. Then he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he, saw, when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field. And as they came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost, and is found. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God, we ask you to bless the 
reading and the preaching of your word this Lord's day. And we pray that it would do its work of sanctifying us and conforming us into the image of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. There's no better illustration of your father's, your heavenly father's unshakable love for you than the story that I just read from the end of Luke 15. Last week, we looked at the first half of the text and focused on the younger son. And I invite you to go back and listen to that on the website if you missed it. It's sort of part one. This is part two. We saw that the extravagant love of the father outdid the extravagant rebellion of the son. And we saw our sin can never outperform God's grace. The most heinous sins you've committed are no match for God's love for you in Christ. The younger brother's prodigal sin was met with and overwhelmed by his father's prodigal grace. We looked at what that word prodigal means last week. But the younger brother is not the only prodigal son in the story. Today we'll look at the second half of this parable and examine the actions and attitude of the prodigal elder brother. There are two prodigal sons here, and the older one's relationship with his father is just as important for us to meditate on as the younger one's. No doubt the elder brother's rebellion is less obvious. It's more subtle. The, the older son is a, a goody-two-shoes, a, a suck-up. On paper, he's the son all the other dads want. He, as he says, he obeys his father's rules as well as any faithful slave ever could. Lo, all these years... All the father's friends tell him they wish they had a son just like him. But we see his true colors when his little brother comes home. The big brother turns out to be a whitewashed tomb. And he, he re-enters the story in verse 25, which is where we stopped last week. So we'll pick up there today and focus on the older brother's interaction with the father. We'll make some observations and applications just as we did last Sunday. Verse 25 says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard the music and the dancing. So the party had already started. The father didn't waste any time. Verse 26, So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, that's one word in the Greek that we'll look at in a minute, your father has killed the fatted calf. That, that, that verse 20 contains a significant word. In, in most English Bibles, it's translated something like safe and sound. It's one of those words that we talked about in Sunday school today that's hard to encapsulate with one English word or even sometimes a lot of English words. The father received his son safe and sound. Well, that safe and sound is the word hugiaino, which is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word shalom. And so in the Old Testament, when, when the 
Jews translated the Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek, when they came to Shalom, they used this Greek word that I just said that gets translated here safe and sound. And so if we were translating the New Testament into Hebrew, the, the word we would use here is something like shalom, right? Which means peace. But it doesn't just mean peace the way we often use the word peace, as in a peace agreement or a peace treaty or a peace sign or a peace pipe. Our, our English word peace does not carry the same gravity, same weight, same connotations as the biblical word. In Scripture, the shalom of God is an overall peace and well-being of body and soul and all the other aspects of life, and it's a peace that only God can give. Shalom is the peace experienced by a person or a family or a city or a church or a people that is under the blessing of God Almighty. So there are two types of human being in the world. There are humans that possess God's shalom, and there are those who do not. Now, at this point in our parable, at this point in the story, there are two types of son. There's the son who possesses shalom, and there's the son who does not. Verse 27 indicates that the younger son is experiencing true shalom. Again, true safeness and soundness. Safe and sound indicates that the son is not just experiencing shalom with his earthly father it connotes also peace with his heavenly father shalom is a pregnant word in the old testament and it became a particularly important concept idea word when the israelites were in exile in babylon during the 500s bc before christ during most of the 500s B.C., Israel was in Babylonian captivity. Remember, the Babylonians came down. The Assyrians had taken the northern kingdom of Israel captive about a century and a half earlier. And then the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians. And then in the 500s, they came and took the Jews into captivity. And that's... That's the background here, even for this parable, as we'll see. Jesus expects his readers to be familiar with that Babylonian captivity of the Jews. And during, that, during the, the Jew, Jewish exile, the prophet Jeremiah, he wrote a letter to the exiled Israelites. And that letter is recorded in Jeremiah 29, and it, it say, it, it's addressed to the exile, and it, it says two things. It tells them two things. At least. First, Jeremiah tells them to establish shalom in Babylon. He uses that word. Establish shalom in Babylon. Establish God's peace where you live right now. You know, get jobs, build houses, you know, um, cultivate gardens, and, and do it. Don't, don't just feel sorry for yourself and, and just long for the day you come back. Live where you are. Now, grow where you've been planted for now. And the way he says that is to establish shalom. Don't wait until you return. Start working towards shalom now while you're in exile. There's a message there for us that I'll preach someday, but not today. 
Verse 7 in Jeremiah 29 says, Seek the shalom of the city where I have caused you to be exiled and pray to the Lord for it because in the shalom of the city you will have shalom. So first, shalom in exile. Second, Jeremiah promises, this is what we're going to focus more on today, Jeremiah promises the exiles that one day shalom will be reestablished in Jerusalem. Okay, so the shalom in the city of, or in, in Babylon is, is not the end. They can look forward to shalom being reestablished in their homeland. He says that their exile in Babylon will last 70 years, but afterward he'll bring them back and give them peace. He will restore shalom in the promised land. Jeremiah 29.10 After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good toward you and cause you to return to this place, to Jerusalem. For I know the thoughts that I have toward you, or I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of shalom and not of evil. Thoughts to give you a future and a hope. Here, Here God promises that his son Israel would experience shalom when they returned to their homeland as a chastised and repentant people because they were in exile because of their sin. In exile, Israel was symbolically dead. They were experiencing God's judgment. But one day they would return and be alive again. That's the language the prophet Ezekiel uses in chapter 37. He describes Israel as in exile as a valley of dry bones, which is Israel's bones. Israel is figuratively a pile of bones in exile. And it's really a comment on their spiritual state. But, he, but Ezekiel also describes... Just as Jeremiah does, he also describes the future resurrection of these dry bones. One day the Israelites will be raised from their symbolic, from, from, from death, their symbolic death, and they'll return to their homeland and experience deep shalom. And that's what happened in 538 B.C. And after 70 years in exile, Israel returned home just as Jeremiah promised. Another way of saying it is that Israel was raised from the dead. The Jews returned to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple and their nation. Israel was lost and then it was found. They were dead and they were alive again. All of this is important background for the Lord's most famous parable in Luke 15. And in verse 27, when the servants tell the, uh, when the servant tells the older brother that the younger brother is safe and sound, he's saying that the son is back from exile. He's come back to his homeland. He's been restored to the fullness of God's shalom. The prodigal is at peace with God and at peace with his dad. He was lost and is found. He's dead and alive again. And now, and, and, and now we, we, get, we consider how the old, older brother responds to this. How does this older son feel about all this? What's his response? He should have been rejoicing over his younger brother's newfound shalom. Instead, he's jealous and he's furious. How could such a prodigal sinner ever experience this kind of shalom, this music and festivity, this grace? 
Verses 28 to 30 record the elder son's response. But he was angry and would not go in to the feast. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been slaving you, is the idea there. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. So what's the first thing that the, that the elder son says to his father? The first thing out of his mouth, lo, these many years I have been slaving you. I never disobeyed your command. Think of that. He never disobeyed his father's command? Really? How do you figure that? He was disobeying his father at that very moment. While, while he was saying the words, I never disobeyed your command, he was refusing to come to the feast and to welcome his little brother back home. His self-deception is beyond belief, or is it? How could he announce to his father that he had always done his father's will while he was in the middle of a rebellious temper tantrum? Self-deception is a powerful and dangerous thing. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who could know it? Charles Spurgeon said that the most wicked book you will ever read is your own heart. There's no person on earth who is in a better position to deceive you than you are. No one will ever be as successful at pulling the wool over your eyes, at duping you as you are or you will be. Do you ever find yourself in an argument in which your ultimate goal is to point out the other person's sin? You're so focused on the other person's offense that your attitude and your words become ugly and ungodly. And in the course of the argument, you convince yourself that your indignation is righteous. After all, the other person's sins are serious. Later you look back though and you see how blind you were to your own wickedness in that moment. Hopefully sooner rather than later. In the heat of the moment you can't see how desperately wicked your own heart is. The elder son surely can't see the wickedness in his own heart. But why can't we see this? Why? Because your heart knows how to make everyone but you look guilty, or, or how to make everyone look more guilty than you. That's what the son's doing here, the older son. And, and there's an older brother in every one of us, and he must be put to death every day, usually multiple times per day. And the way you put your inner elder brother to death is by confessing your sins to God daily, by acknowledging what is true? Confession means agreeing with God that you are sinful. By examining your, motor, your, your motives and your desires regularly. By asking God's Spirit to search your heart and mind, as the psalm says, for sinful thoughts. And then asking for the grace to actually see what the Spirit is showing you. By actively putting on the mind of Christ, which is a mind of humility, 
So by humbling yourself before God, that he might exalt you. The elder brother was not in the habit of doing any of these things. He had exalted himself. And so he couldn't see his heart. What about you? Is your lack of spiritual discipline and self-reflection, self-awareness taking you down the road of the elder brother? There's another sad irony about the elder brother's response. In verse 29, he says, Lo, these many years I have been slaving you. Serving you is one translation, but he's putting himself in the position of a slave. When the younger brother came back, he said to his father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired slaves. And what does the father do in response? He exalts the prodigal and restores him to the privileges of sonship. The elder brother, on the other hand, had been enjoying the privileges of sonship the entire time. Everything I have has been yours the whole time. And yet he never considered himself anything more than a slave. The father saw the elder brother as a son, but the elder brother saw his father as a slave master. How could that be? For all those years, the elder brother's service to his father had been done out of sheer obligation. He didn't obey his father out of love and gratitude in the context of a father-son relationship. In fact, he didn't even love his father. He resented his father the way an oppressed slave resents his oppressive master. The elder, elder brother hated his father just as much as the younger brother once did, perhaps more. What about you? Do you obey God simply because you must out of sheer obligation? And that's all there is to it. Or does it bring you joy to do God's will? Is is obedience a burden? Or do you delight in the law of the Lord? In other words, we could ask those questions this way. Are you a slave or a son? Are you a slave or a son? Or we could ask it this way. Is Psalm 40 verse 8 your prayer? Psalm 40 verse 8 says, I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. Is that true? Children, young people, do you delight in obeying your parents? Do you obey cheerfully even when you don't agree? Or maybe even when they're wrong, right? When, when, when maybe later they come back and say they were wrong. But in that moment, did you obey cheerfully as God was calling you to do? Or do you just obey the rules because you have to? Maybe, maybe your parents' rules, some of them don't make sense to you. It could be that you don't understand why your parents seem to overlook the sins of a sibling or two in the house while all of your faults always get pointed out. Perhaps you've become bitter toward your parents. Maybe, maybe you've become bitter toward God. 
because of something that's happened in your household. This could be true of adults as well. Well, if that's the case, then, you be, then you've become the elder brother in this parable. Children, when you obey your parents, you're obeying God because that's what God commands you to do. And this is true no matter how imperfect your parents are. The parents that God has given you are your parents. And no matter how bad you think their rules are, when you obey them, you are pleasing God and you are obeying God. So God doesn't command you to obey your parents because their rules always make sense or because they deserve your obedience intrinsically as if they are worthy always of your obedience no but God always is worthy of your obedience and he commands you to obey your parents because it brings honor to him and it's good for you God is glorified when you cheerfully obey your sinful parents adults the same goes for us When you obey your authorities, when you obey your elders, your city council members, your boss, you're obeying God. And this is true no matter how imperfect your God-appointed authorities are. And no matter how bad you think their rules are. As long as they're not asking you to sin, to disobey God, then most likely God is calling you to obey their requirements, their mandates cheerfully while giving thanks even. That's how it works with you and your children, and that's how it works with your authorities and you. The modern church is forgetting this old truth in favor of a political theology that is more convenient and certainly sometimes more exciting. But but children and adults, God doesn't command you to obey your authorities because their rules make sense or because they deserve your obedience. He commands you to do something from the heart because it honors God to do so. God is glorified when you cheerfully and gratefully obey your Father in heaven and your Father on earth. So the question at the bottom of all of this is, do you take pleasure in God's law? Do you find joy in doing what God wants you to do, even if it's not what you would have chosen? Do you enjoy submitting your will to your heavenly Father's will as Jesus did for the joy that was set before him? He submitted his will to his Father's will. Is that how you frame it when it happens? Or is there just resentment? Does it bring you delight? Do you take pleasure in doing God's will? Or are God's laws burdensome, sheer obligation? You obey because you know you're supposed to, but you do it begrudgingly. You obey the authorities God has appointed over you, but you do so with a lot of resentment and very little, if any, gratitude. If this is where you are, before you can learn to delight in God's law, you must first learn how to delight in God himself. That's the missing piece or the weak link. Only those who delight in the Lord will know how to delight in his law, even when it hurts, even when it's uncomfortable. 
even when it goes against what our will would naturally want to do. So if you're not at peace with God, if you're not experiencing shalom with God in your heart, if, if you're not taking pleasure in God, if you're not enjoying communion with your Lord, then your obedience to God will be sheer duty and no delight. The elder brother had stopped taking pleasure in his father long ago. This is not primarily about his father's rules. It's about his relationship with his father. He didn't even think of his father as a loving father anymore. He thought of him as a taskmaster, a slave lord, someone who just gave commands to be obeyed, and then surely I should get something for doing it. He didn't delight in his father's commands because he didn't delight in his father. And it's easy to tell when a believer is not delighting in God. And you don't, the, the telltale sign is not that they hate God's law or never talk about God's law. It's, it's easy to spot Christians who don't enjoy God, Christians who do not, haven't yet learned how to delight in God's love and fatherly goodness. They have two characteristics, these elder brother types. First, they view the relationship with God primarily in terms of God's law oftentimes. They love God's law even more than they love God. And when they think about God, they think first of a lawgiver rather than a father, but that's backward. When God called Israel out of Egypt, he did it because he loved his son because Israel was his adopted son. And then after God called his son out of Egypt, he gave them his law to be obeyed. God is first our father and then our lawgiver. The elder brother got that backward. Christians who do not delight in God turn this around. They get it backward. They see themselves as slaves, as mere law keepers rather than as sons, and it distorts their vision of reality. Second, believers who don't know how to enjoy God are constantly comparing themselves with others in terms of how well they keep the law and how well somebody else doesn't. That's, what the, that's another thing that the elder brother is doing here. And elder brother types are aware of how much better they keep God's law than those around them. They think God loves them more because they obey God better. They think others deserve less than they do because others do not obey God as well as they do. Again, is that you? Are you an elder brother believer? Do you know God primarily as the one who must be obeyed? Or do you know him primarily first as the one who adopted you as his son or his daughter? Do you obey him out of sheer obligation or do you obey him because you love him and therefore you love his law and you submit your will to his for the joy set before you? A joy that the world doesn't know how to experience because in that same situation it would not be joyful. We've come to the final two sentences of the parable. Verses 31 and 32. And he said to them, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. 
So Jesus comes full circle. The end of the story takes us back to the beginning of the chapter. That's why I read the beginning. Recall that Luke 15 contains three related parables. In verses 3 to 7, Jesus tells the parable of the lost coin. Verses 8 to 10, the parable of the lost sheep. And then in verses 11 to 32, the parable of the prodigal son, as it's usually called. And here in verse 32, at the end, Jesus takes us back to where he started. Listen again to verses 1 and 2. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So what's the complaint to the scribes and Pharisees, these religious leaders? This man receives sinners and eats with them. That's the complaint. What an outrage. This man, Jesus, makes merry with prodigals. How could he? He's obviously not the one. He obviously should be killed. And how does Jesus respond to the complaint? Well, he tells them three parables. And the culmination of his response is Luke 15, 32, where the father tells the, his pharisaical older son, it's right that we should make merry and be glad. It's right that we should do what Jesus is doing at the beginning of this chapter. <clears throat> so our Lord's point is that the Pharisees and scribes, these religious types, <clears throat> should be glad that the tax collectors and sinners are eating with Jesus that they're returning to the Lord. It's right to make merry and be glad for all these prodigal sons and daughters of Israel who are returning from spiritual exile and coming to Jesus in humility and brokenness and faith. These, these sinners were dead and are alive again. They were lost and are found. The, the parable of the prodigal elder brother exposes the self-deception and the self-righteousness of all the Pharisees and scribes. They should have been rejoicing at the repentance of sinners and they should have been repenting of their own sins right along with them. Instead, they resented Jesus for extending grace to wretched sinners. The attitude and actions of the elder brother exposes our self-righteousness and our self-deception. Each of us has an inner Pharisee, inner scribe, an inner elder brother. And your inner Pharisee tells you that your sins aren't as despicable as everyone else's. He tells you that you're more deserving of God's favor and less deserving of God's wrath than the average person, at least. He reminds you of all you've done for God. But, but, the inner Pharisee can't teach you how to delight in God's law because he doesn't even know what it means to delight in God himself. Your inner elder brother, if you don't slay him, will make you into a dutiful slave who perhaps obeys out of sheer obligation. You will forget that you're a son of God and that everything he has is already yours.
there's another elder brother. He's not mentioned explicitly in this parable, but the story points to him nonetheless. This other older brother is not self-righteous, nor is he self-deceived. He's nothing like the elder brother in this story. The other elder brother loves his father and loves his little brothers and sisters with an unfailing prodigal love. And he welcomes his younger siblings to his father's feast. This elder brother loves making merry with his sinful little brothers and sisters. His little siblings can sometimes be quite prodigal in their sin, but he always welcomes them home. He al- he's always glad when they return. And when they do return, he helps his father prepare a feast for them. This elder brother, this other elder brother, along with his father, makes merry when his prodigal brothers and sisters return to their homeland. He rejoices with his father and he says, my brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Not this son of yours, but this brother of mine. This sister of mine. Did you know that Hebrews 2 calls Jesus our elder brother? It even says that he's not ashamed to call us his little brothers. Hebrews 2.11 Both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one. For this reason he, Jesus is not ashamed to call them, us, brothers, brethren, brothers and sisters. In the parable, the elder son refused to view the younger son as a brother. This son of yours, he says, has devoured your livelihood with prostitutes. But Jesus never says anything like that. He never thinks anything like that. It's not like he might think it, but he doesn't say it. No, it doesn't enter his heart. His attitude toward you is exactly the opposite of this. When you're acting like the younger brother in this story, Jesus never acts like the older brother in this story. Instead, what does he do? He prays for you. He intercedes for you. He goes to the father on your behalf. The elder brother went to the father as an accuser. Jesus doesn't go to the Father to complain about you or to accuse you. That's the the devil's work. Christ only goes to the Father to advocate your case, to remind the Father that your sins are covered by the elder brother's blood, the elder son's blood. The elder brother in the parable argued against his younger brother, but Jesus argues for you. 1 John 2, 1 says that we have an advocate with the Father. And this advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous one who advocates for the unrighteous. An advocate is someone who argues on your behalf, someone who defends your case before the judge. Jesus, your elder brother, is doing that for you even now. The elder brother in the parable didn't want his little brother to get any of his father's riches, or at least not any more of them. But your faithful elder brother willingly became poor so that you could be rich 
in him so that he could share his riches with you. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus receives sinners and he eats with them. Do you? Do we? Do we as a church body attract the same kinds of people that Jesus did? Why are all these people coming to him? These outcasts, marginalized. Are are sinners and outsiders drawn to us? Or do we attract other Pharisees? One Bible expositor put it this way. The teachings of Jesus consistently attracted the irreligious, the unreligious. And they regularly offended the Bible-believing religious people of his day. However, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. The kind of outsiders Jesus attracted are not attracted to our churches. We tend to draw conservative, buttoned-down, moralistic people. The broken and marginal avoid church they can only, that can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus declared, end quote. We've got to make sure that that's not an indictment of us as individuals, as families, as a congregation. Jesus welcomes broken sinners like you and me. It's not, not those people out there It starts with us. He welcomes us to his feast. When sinners like you and me come to Jesus saying, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your child. Our Lord's response to these sinners is always the same. He clothes them. He clothes us with his robe of righteousness and he makes merry with them, with us at his table as he's about to do again. It doesn't matter how prodigal you've been. It doesn't matter how prodigal others have been. And so in a way, the Pharisees and the scribes were exactly right at the beginning of Luke 15. In verse 2, they're complaining that this man receives sinners and eats with them. And they're exactly right. Jesus receives sinners and he eats with them. He has been doing this for nearly 2,000 years. He does it here every Lord's Day. And rejoice because he's about to do it again. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your unrivaled grace and acceptance of wicked sinners, unrighteous people like us. Your unrivaled love and compassion. And as we once again come to the feast as forgiven rebels, we pray that you would drive deeper into the recesses of our hearts the beauty and the bounty of the gospel of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray.
Amen.